unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, twelve baskets full. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited? If he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Our understanding of who Christ is is necessarily linked to our following of Christ. We need to understand who Christ is and we need to follow Christ. And both of those will contribute to one another. We see uh, several main things in this passage. First, that the disciples must depend solely on God's provision. Verses 1-6. through The disciples must depend solely on God's provision. And in this uh, short section here, the short paragraph, there are three sets of instructions. First, verse 3, they are to take nothing for their journey. He said, don't even take a bag. The bag was for their normal possessions. Don't even bother bringing your, the normal things that you would take in order to, to have what you need. Instead, you're supposed to depend upon the hospitality of the house to which you go. So that was the first instruction. Take nothing with you. The second is, remain in the same house. Verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. In other words, don't don't continually look continually look for an upgrade. You know, as you you come to one house and you know not the best uh, accommodations, but as you you start to talk to some other people, they're willing to take you in, and and maybe you you talk about them. But no, just stay in one place and depend upon that person. Really, depend upon God through the giving of that person. Then third third instruction is to rid yourself of defilement. Verse 5, And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. That is, be ready for rejection. The Jews uh, would see the Gentiles as dirty people. And so after they would come out of a Gentile territory, they would shake the dust off their feet, showing that they have removed themselves from that. They've removed the defilement from themselves. And Jesus is using this in a different way by saying those who reject you and your message are the ones who uh, you need to shake the dust off your feet. You need to rid yourself of that defilement. In other words, 
recognize that there are going to be polarizing reactions to your message. That there will be some who, verse 4, accept you and they take you into your home. But there will be many who reject you as well. And it's not on the basis of the, the disciples' personality. Did you notice that? It's not on the basis of their... Notice what they're doing in verse 2. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And then verse 5, As for those who do not receive you, it's not because they don't like you, it's because they don't like your message. And what God's doing here is He's teaching the disciples, Jesus is teaching the disciples to depend upon Him. God pulls out all the stops so that they're firmly depending upon Jesus. They're firmly depending upon their Father in Heaven that that God is the one who provides for them. So the disciples must depend solely on God's provision. Secondly, the disciples make such an impact that the public is compelled to identify Jesus. Or we could say to make a choice about Jesus. The public is compelled to to make a choice about Jesus, verses 7 through 9. As a result of the disciples going out, they're going out to all these different places, the news of Jesus spreads. And the, the news of His work and His followers spread. And the result is the public take no, takes notice. Notice verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening. So he heard about the miracles of Jesus apparently and the teachings of Jesus and he also heard about what the disciples had been doing and and he's trying to figure out who this Jesus is notice verse 7 in the middle of the verse and he was greatly perplexed Herod was because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead so maybe this is John the Baptist others said it was Elijah had appeared others said it was the prophets of old so there's there's three options that they they offer the public when they hear about what's going on well these spectacular and miraculous works can only be John the Baptist, Elijah coming back from the dead, or one of the prophets of old. That was their assessment of the situation. And again, it's Luke trying to help us to answer the question, who is this man, Jesus? Herod Herod narrowed it down to these three, but all three of these options were incorrect, as we'll hear from the disciples in verse 20, because you remember when Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? He gives the same three answers that Herod gives. But they give the correct answer. Herod, in order to get a better understanding of who this man Jesus is, he desires to meet with him. Notice the end of verse 9, and he kept trying to see him. The only record that we have of Herod meeting with Jesus is at his trial, at Jesus' trial. And at that time, Jesus did not say a word. Herod's wanting him to entertain him and to to fill him in on all these questions that he has, but he didn't really want to serve Jesus. And so Jesus wisely said nothing. The disciples make such an impact that the public is compelled to identify Jesus. Thirdly, The disciples are often challenged by a needy society. Verses 10 and 11. They're often challenged by a needy society. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to Him of all that they had done. Taking them with Him, He withdrew by Himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed Him. This would often happen with Jesus and the disciples. They would try to get away. But... uh, but the crowds would would have such a demand on their time and on their resources, on their ability to heal and to teach, 
that that they would they would find it very hard to be alone. The crowd the crowd finds out where they are, uh, even though they're trying to meet with Jesus and tell them about Jesus is basically pushing them out of the nest, so to speak. You know, it's it's time for you guys to 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 give it a try. You you get out there and speak about the kingdom of God. You get out there and perform miracles and do healings, which is basically showing that you're a representative of my message. You do it. And so they do it, and now they want to come back and talk to Jesus because, hey, you know, I, I failed here, Jesus. What what did I do wrong here? Uh, can I tell you about this great thing that happened in, in this city? And it, instead, the crowds, the crowds demand their time. And I think that's true in our lives as well, that sometimes our desire to meet with God is in, interrupted by people who need us to serve them. That's not always a bad thing. Um, certainly we do need to make time to spend with God. But sometimes the the desire for people who need us can be overwhelming. The fourth uh, point that we see here in this passage is that the disciples are tested based on past success. The disciples are tested based on past success, verses 12 through 17. Familiar story of the feeding of the 5,000. But what Jesus is doing here, if we think about it in the larger context, we often think about it like this is this is uh, Jesus and it's showing who He is, and in a sense it is. There, there's definitely that in the passage. But if we think about it in the context, Jesus is actually teaching the disciples a lesson. Because in verses 1 through 6, the disciples were put in a position where they had to depend on God, right? They had to go from town to town. They couldn't bring any provisions with them. They couldn't even uh, wear their outside tunic. They They, they had to just... Uh, have their inner one. That was the only thing that they could have with them. No bag, no food. And apparently they succeeded because the word spread about what was going on in verses 7 through 9. And that certainly wasn't the only time that they had seen Jesus provide. Certainly uh, James and John saw Him provide when Jesus came into the boat and allowed them to have this miraculous catch in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And so God has given them opportunities to take steps of faith and to trust in Him and to depend on Him. But now He's going to try to build on that. He's going to, to see if the disciples can build on what they learn. He wants, to see, he wants to see if they have indeed learned how to depend upon God. So notice what happens in verse 12. Now the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to them, Send the crowd away, as they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat, for we are in a desolate place. You know, we're out in the middle of nowhere, and Jesus, you've been teaching for quite a while now. You need to send them home. Give them enough time to get back and get something to eat. They can't just go get some fast food on the way home. It's going to take some time for them to get home and to prepare a meal, so send them away. Notice what Jesus says to them. And that's why I, say, I think that Jesus is testing their faith. Verse 13, He said to them, No, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. But if we think about it, this is a huge challenge for the disciples. Right? We have 5,000 men, according to four, verse 14, so probably 20,000 people or more are there, although some scholars believe that only the men would have been here at this time, that uh, very likely the women and children would have been at home taking care of the home and and um, preparing meals and whatever else um, was necessary. The men would be the ones who would be out away from their, their jobs. Remember, not, they're not all working. Um, 
there uh, many of them are are finding it difficult to to make ends meet. So, but but whatever the case, five thousand, twenty thousand, whatever the case, there's a great amount of people, and all they can gather up is five loaves and two fish. It's been a long day. They're out in the middle of nowhere, verse twelve, in a desolate place, and the disciples just don't have enough provisions. And this, and so Jesus says, "You give them something to eat." But of course, they their faith fails here. They don't recognize who they have in their presence, and they say to him in verse thirteen, "We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people." And I think that the implied uh, rest of the statement is, "And where are we going to get money for that? Let alone the food." Um, and so. As a result, Jesus feeds the people despite the disciples' lack of faith in verses 14 to 16. He has them all sit down in groups of 50 and He hands out baskets to the disciples and the baskets keep filling up. In verse 17, Jesus shows that He has the source of provision that He abundantly provides. All ate and were satisfied and the broken pieces which they had left over were 12 baskets full. These 12 baskets were filled to the top, and I think Jesus uh, did that in order to show the disciples that He is the one who does provide, and when He provides, He provides abundantly. In other words, they needed to grow in their faith. Jesus had been teaching and doing miracles right in front of them for a long time by now, perhaps a couple of years, and their hearing and, and seeing these things were not enough. They needed to show the fruits of faith and faithfulness. What about you, Christian? Have you succeeded when God has tested your faithfulness? Have you seen victory when God has tested to see if you have faith in Him? Have you shown your willingness to depend upon God in times when you are without provisions? Well, praise God for that success. But don't rest on your accomplishments. Recognize that God is going to test you in a deeper way. He wants to grow your faith. He will continue to refine you so that your trust in Him is deeper. Maybe you've had that opportunity to trust in God and to depend upon Him as a Christian and you failed the test. Well, I can, I can encourage you this evening by telling you that there will be a retake. God is merciful. He loves you so much that He will continue to lead you to the best place possible for you and that is when you are leaning on Him. fifth point that we see in this passage is that the disciples must recognize that following the Messiah does not mean immediate victory. Following the Messiah often means suffering. Verses 18-22. to Luke has been very careful to point out the times of intense prayer by Jesus. And if you're to read through the Gospel of Luke, one of the things that should strike you is the prayers of Jesus. That Jesus is often going away to pray or praying before significant events. And I don't think that he's just simply kind of throwing them in there like, I, I can't miss this part, this is important. I think, he, I think they actually make a connection between Jesus' prayer. Luke is making a connection between Jesus' prayer and what follows. So let me see if I can show, you, show that to you. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. I think he's trying to show the connection between Jesus' prayer and the subsequent events. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it was at that time that He went off to the mountain to pray. So here we have Jesus 
going away for solitary prayer, speaking to God, depending upon Him in prayer. And he spent the whole night in prayer. Verse 13, And when day came, what did he do? He called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them. This is a critical point in Jesus' life as he calls the disciples. And what do we find Jesus doing? Not, you know, God has already predetermined who these disciples are long before the foundation of the world, which He has. But no, He's depending the night before on God in prayer. Making sure that that this choice of disciples is according to God's plan. Turn back to chapter 22. A passage, obviously, we haven't studied yet, but chapter 22, verse 39. Notice the connection between Jesus praying and what happens next. Chapter 22, verse 39, And He came out and proceeded, as was His custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed Him. And when He arrived at the place, He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So here Jesus is recognizing that the next days, the days ahead, are going to be very difficult. And so He tells them, You need to pray so that you do not fall into temptation. Notice verse 41. And he withdrew, Jesus, from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. So he's going off a little bit distance from him at the Mount of Olives, and he's expecting them to be doing what at the same time? Praying. Okay. Notice what he says. Verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. So here Jesus is depending upon God for the next days of difficulty that lie ahead. He wants to make sure that that his focus is in the right place. Verse 44, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, we may like to explain away the connection between Jesus' prayer and His faithfulness throughout the trial that's about to happen. We might like to explain it away because, hey, Jesus is God, right? He's not going to sin. But but Jesus recognizes something that we need to recognize, that not only does God ordain the means or, or the end, that Jesus will not sin through these trials, but He also ordains the means. God's going to give Him the strength through what? Through prayer. Through prayerfully depending upon His Father. And what happens in the days ahead? What happens in the hours ahead? Jesus had prayed and, and spent the night praying, and He succeeded. He was faithful to His Father. The disciples did not pray. They fell asleep instead. And what do we find them doing? They're all scattered. And what do we find Peter doing? Denying Christ three times. Now, the connection here is that Jesus depends upon His Father in order to accomplish the important works that are about to happen, the important events of life. Now, Jesus doesn't just depend upon the, His Father during those times, but we are specifically, uh, we specifically see those. Luke points those out. You can turn back to Luke chapter 9 because here the connection is between Jesus praying and the very next event that's going to happen, which is 
the disciples identifying who Christ is. Jesus prays immediately before that, and I think it's important that we see that connection. Verse 18, And it happened that while Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with Him, and He questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? Of course, they answer like Herod had answered. It's got to be either John the Baptist, but of course Herod's thinking, I killed him, so how could it be John the Baptist? Others say that it's Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. And and then they respond here in verse 20. Jesus is praying alone in verse 18. And, and it seems to me that the purpose of His prayer was that God would reveal to the disciples who He was. Throughout Luke's Gospel, as we've seen several times, we're, we're trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? The, the Pharisees are trying to figure this out in chapter 5, verse 21. Who is this that, that says He can forgive sins? Herod and the public are trying to figure it out in verses 7 and 8 of this chapter. And in chapter 8, verse 25, the disciples are asking this question. When they see Jesus calm the storm, who then is this that He commands even the winds and the water and they obey Him? So, so now we kind of come to the climax, the culmination of finding out the identity of Christ. Who is this Jesus? And here's the answer here in verse 20. And He said to them, But who do you, disciples, say that I am? And Peter, answering, I think, on behalf of all the disciples, said, The Christ of God. What's another word for Christ? The Messiah of God. Right? You are the promised one. You are the anointed one from the Old Testament, the one that was promised. Peter responds here rightly that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, just like when they were compelled to trust in God for their provisions, when Jesus had sent them out, they had not been, been they had not completed their faith. They're, they're not finished. And I think in the same way. Peter's answer in no way means that the disciples fully understand who the Messiah is. Now, it doesn't record it here. Luke doesn't record it. But Mark's Gospel does record it. The very first time that Jesus tells them that He is going to suffer and die, what does Peter say? That's not going to happen. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. See, Peter had just finished answering, You are the Messiah of God but he didn't recognize all the implication of, implications of what the Messiah, being the Messiah meant. And so I think the same thing is, or we could draw that same point here, that although they answer correctly, they don't fully understand what that means. They don't fully understand what it means to be the Messiah. And I think probably we could say that at the beginning of our Christian lives, we would say something very similar we would all acknowledge that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But did we fully understand what that means? I mean, don't you have a deeper understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah than when you first believed? And, And have you arrived today? Do you fully understand all the implications of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah? Or is there more for you to learn as well? And the point is, is the disciples didn't fully understand what they were saying. Yes, they understood that He was the promised one from the Old Testament, but they were thinking victory, victory, victory. Because they they respond rightly, Jesus now wants to build on their understanding. Notice what He does. As soon as they respond rightly, You are the Messiah, 
Notice what he tells them in verse 22. First, in verse 21, he tells them that they should tell no one. In verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Remember last week we saw that if the public finds out that Jesus is the promised Messiah, they will either try to accelerate His path to the throne or they will seek to kill Him. And so Jesus says, don't tell anyone what I'm about to tell you because if you tell them that I'm the Messiah, they won't fully understand. Just like you don't fully understand, they, they will, they will uh, fully misunderstand what's going on. And so Jesus expands their understanding of what it means to be the Messiah. Now that they have a proper understanding, though it's still incomplete, of who Jesus is, they need to know that following the Messiah does not mean immediate, triumphant victory. And so He draws out some necessary implications for those who follow Him. Following the Messiah means severe opposition and death. That is, you need to recognize, first of all, that as the Messiah, I am going to be led to death. And then, verses 23-27, through 27, He's going to show that if you're going to follow Me, following means suffering and potentially death for me. This is the first time that they've heard of this. The disciples were under the impression that they were following the Messiah. And now he's saying he's going to die. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs live and reign. They crush their enemies. And so Jesus says, listen, not going to happen as you think. I am going to suffer and die, and you are going to suffer for my sake as well. And that will be the theme of the last, um, the last part of the book, really, chapter nine, verse fifty-one, through chapter nineteen. That that believers need to follow Jesus no matter what. He he wants to show you that as you understand more of the of who Jesus is, that it, it's going to mean. That, that you are wholeheartedly devoted to Him even if suffering is one of the results. Sixthly, and finally, disciples must wholeheartedly follow Christ even into suffering. Disciples must wholeheartedly follow Christ even into suffering. Verses 23-27. to 27. It's not only critical how the twelve disciples saw Jesus, it's also critical how all followers will see Him. Notice what happens in verse 23. So, He's telling this, this detail about Him suffering and dying just to the, to the disciples. But notice what happens in verse 23. And He was saying to them all. That is, now He turns and instead of speaking in this little huddle of Him and the twelve disciples, He now speaks to all the disciples who are following Him. And he wants them to know, and I think He wants us to know, that following Him does not mean immediate victory. As disciples, we must be wholeheartedly willing to follow Him even into suffering. That's not because Jesus is masochistic, that He loves suffering, but because He is committed to the purposes of God. That He loves God's purposes and what God wants to do more than the comforts of this world. So let's... Uh, so, so if we're going to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ, what does it require of us? 
Jesus gives a threefold command and an explanation of what it means to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Threefold command. First, self-denial. Verse 23, self-denial. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Do you realize that if you live for yourself, you don't deny yourself anything? Or you deny yourself very little? A person who loves food indulges in the pleasures of food without restraint. A person who loves money indulges in the pursuit of money without restraint. But do you know a person who denies himself and follows after God, who loves God, will pursue his purposes, God's purposes, with everything that they have because they have denied even their right to their own natural pleasures. They love God so much they're willing to set the the greatest pleasures in life aside for the better pleasure of serving God. So if we're going to be disciples of Christ, we need to deny ourselves. Secondly, self-sacrifice. Verse 23, deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Self-sacrifice. Not only can we deny the things that we want, but we also have to give ourselves to other people and to the work of God. Scholar Joel Green describes the command like this, that we must live day by day as though we have been sentenced to death by crucifixion. In this sense, we are dead to the world that opposes God's purposes. And when we live this way, we are free to live according to the values of God's kingdom proclaimed in Jesus' ministry. If we're going to be followers and wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ, then we must live as though we have forfeited our rights to everything in this world. So these two commands are something that ought to be done. It seems like they're a point-in-time sort of a command based on the, the verb form that is used, that these are something that are done and, and they're over with. We, are denying, we, we, we have denied ourselves the pleasures of following after the world and we have given ourselves to self-sacrifice. This is the commitment we've made when we've come to Christ. This third one, this third command, is one that's in a, in a more of a present... Um, it's a present imperative that assumes an ongoing action. Look at the last one. It is, deny himself, verse 23, take up his cross daily and follow me. That is that, that we need to be persistently and, and in an ongoing way living a life of a disciple. So, Jesus says, listen, if you're going to follow me, it, it's got to be wholeheartedly. It's, it's gotta, you've got to give me everything that you got. You've got to be completely devoted to me. So, the next question that we would ask is, what does it look like to be a devoted disciple of Christ? What does it look like? What would my lo- life look like if I was completely devoted to Christ? And Jesus gives an explanation of what it would look like in verses 24 through 26. First of all, uh, we could say number one, a devoted disciple lives a life of loss. A a devoted disciple lives a life of loss. Verse 24. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. When we choose to follow Christ, we give up on the things of this life and the opportunity for more. 
This is not a call to masochism as if a person who wrecks his life is a disciple of Christ, that everyone who wrecks their life is a true disciple of Christ. No. Because we are actually gaining something, aren't we? And, and it's not just wrecking our life for the sake of wrecking our, our life. It's, it's actually pursuing God's purposes, which means the potential for wrecking our life. And, and when we lose all those things, all of the things that this world has to offer and the opportunity for more, we actually gain something. That's what the verse says. Look at the second part. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who saves it. He gains it. It's a call to lose your life for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of gaining genuine life. A devoted disciple lives a life of loss. Number two, a devoted disciple recognizes the worthlessness of the world's treasures. He recognizes the worthlessness of the world's treasures. Verse 25, For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his own soul? Loses or forfeits himself. A devoted disciple recognizes the worthlessness of world's treasure. In, in verse 24, Jesus talked about saving and losing your life. In verse 25, He talked about gaining and losing the world. And I think specifically, He's talking about financial prosperity. If you have someone who gains the world, financially speaking, what good is that to them if they've lost their own soul? You see, we recognize that no matter how much riches we can pile up, they pale in comparison to the great riches we have in Christ, right? That, that no amount of riches that we pile up is worth spiritual bankruptcy. Number three, a devoted disciple recognizes that our view of the Messiah in this life will determine our status in the next. Our view of the Messiah in this life will determine our status in the next. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, some scholars argue that this is a loss of rewards, that this is actually talking about believers who are ashamed of Christ, and that when they come to the, the judgment seat of Christ, that they will simply lose a few rewards. But I think in the context, Jesus is drawing a line in the sand, isn't he? He's saying either you're going to follow me or you're going to pursue your own pleasures. And so I think he's still doing that same thing here in verse 26, that you can either save your life and live for yourself or you can lose your life and live for God. You can either lose your life eternally or you'll be saved eternally. So I think Jesus is talking about making a choice to follow him. And I think he's talking about an unbeliever. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. And I will be ashamed of Him, Jesus says. If we live our lives in order to avoid shame and disgrace by the people of this world, then we can, be expect to, we can expect to be full of shame in the next life when Jesus says, Depart from Me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But if you accept Jesus, and if you deny yourself, if you give yourself for His purposes, if you follow Him, if you're willing to accept the shame and reproach that comes with following Him, do you know what will happen? Jesus will not be ashamed of you when He stands before our Father. 
A devoted disciple recognizes that our view of the Messiah in this life will determine our status in the next. Not that the basis of our salvation comes from our work. That's not what I'm saying. But, but I hope you recognize that a person cannot come to saving faith after their life is over. They have to come to saving faith in this lifetime, and that happens through belief in Jesus Christ. It happens through a willingness not to be ashamed of Christ. It happens by counting the cost, by taking up their cross and following Him. In verse 27, Jesus reassures some of the disciples with a glimpse of His glory. Look at verse 27, But I say to you truthfully, speaking to the disciples, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Not only are the disciples His audience here, but remember verse 23, He's speaking to all of His disciples that are following Him. But He is saying something that that is a little bit um, difficult to understand. Some will not taste death, death until they see the kingdom of God. What is He talking about? Look at the very next verse in verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And then skip down to verse 32. Now, excuse me, now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And then later on, God will say, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So, in verse 27, Jesus says, some of you who are standing here will not die, they're not going to taste death, before you see the kingdom of God. And then, the very next thing that's recorded in Luke's Gospel is that the following week, Peter, James, and John go up to the mountain and they see a glimpse of the king himself in all of his glory. They don't see all of His glory, but they see a glimpse of His glory by the King Himself. And so I think what Jesus is talking about is the transfiguration. And if you are to look at Matthew and Mark's Gospel, you'll find that, that they also record the transfiguration immediately after Jesus says this very thing. Some of you will not die before you see the kingdom of God. In other words, He's saying, you three are going to come up with me and see a glimpse. We'll talk about that more next week when we look at verses uh, 28 and following. Let me just encourage you with two points of application this evening. Number one, there is no such thing as a Christian who lives a life of ease. There is no such thing as a Christian who lives a life of ease. A few weeks ago, Dr. Wiggins pointed out that Job 5.7 says that as sparks fly upward, so a man is born for trouble. Anybody attest to that this week? Just as, just as sparks fly upward, so are we born for times of trouble. There is no such thing as a Christian who is whisked, whisked to the clouds on flowery beds of ease. Following Christ means denying yourselves, giving up things that you otherwise would have wanted. Following Christ means taking up your cross. Does that sound like a very pleasant thing for a Jewish person? Take up your cross daily. Following Christ means losing your life. These things, could you imagine a poster that said, hey, come follow Christ. You will receive all the benefits. But but here, you've got to recognize there are a couple bad things here going on. You're going to have to lose your life. You're going to have to go through much trouble because you're following me. 
You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be reproached. So what we need to recognize is that as Christians, suffering for Christ is part of our lives. Suffering for Christ. Now, there is normal suffering that every human faces. You know, your neighbors had their basements flooded too. A lot of them are not Christians. Okay, there's normal suffering that takes place. But there is specific suffering that happens because you are a Christian. The people don't want to be around you. People don't want to, to, to befriend you. People may actually ridicule you. Your family may oppose you just because you, you love Christ and you want to follow Him. That's the type of suffering for Christ that I'm talking about. There's no such thing as a Christian who lives a life of ease. And then secondly, suffering now is far better than suffering then. If you choose suffering for Christ now, then I can assure you, you will enjoy glory with Christ later. But if you choose glory now, this life is all about me and about me getting my notoriety and about me being recognized if that's what this life is all about, then you will suffer for all of eternity. This life is not for you or about you. And if you try to hold on what the world has to offer, then you will let go of a pursuit of God. I've seen it a dozen times when people who've called themselves Christians who gave up because the pull of this world was too strong. That is a person who is in hot pursuit of the absolute truth but tried to hold on what the world had to offer, whether it was money or immorality or a life of ease. They gave up on following God. They're like the person who's in the deep water holding on to a bag of gold. And they think that they can rise to the surface and hold that bag of gold at the same time. But the gold is weighing them down and will cause their final death if they do not let go. You cannot serve God and at the same time serve the pleasures of this world. You can't serve money and serve God at the same time. So you need to make a choice to serve God and His purposes now, even if it means letting go of whatever's in that bag and clinging to tightly to God in His hand as He pulls you up into glory. Deny yourself. Give yourself in complete service and follow Jesus and you will avoid suffering in the next life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would strengthen our resolve this evening to follow You no matter what. We pray that we would be often reminded, even as we continue our study through this Gospel, of our responsibility to follow You faithfully and no matter what. Lord, I think that there are challenges that, that people in this room are facing even now that are pulling them away from a wholehearted devotion to You. So I pray that You would Help them to make a choice to give up on serving the pleasures of this world that are only temporary and fleeting and that 
and and they cannot be treasures that are kept forever. They are ones that are corrupted by rust and eaten by moths. But Lord, we want to live for the treasures that last forever. And I pray that even this week, as the world and our own flesh and the devil pulls on us and and entices us to, to pull away from You, that Your Spirit would guide us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, give ourselves in self-sacrifice, and to follow Christ all the way till glory. And His glory did not come without first suffering. And so may we be ready to follow You even if it means deep suffering for Your sake. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.